起爆！起爆！Wednesday, August 24th, 2022, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast devoted to social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a Hoover Distinguished Policy Fellow. I'll be your moderator today. That means I get to introduce the stars of our show. That would be the economist, John Cochran, the historian, Neil Ferguson, the geostrategist, Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. They are Hoover Institution Senior Fellows all. Neil, let's start with you today. We're going to talk about China, and I want to talk about China by way of Aspen and by way way. Of Aspen, I mean that you wrote a column based upon your experience attending the Aspen Economic Strategy Group. You very cleverly talked about what happened there, in which it was a conversation full of gloom and doom about America's demographic challenges. Hey, doom, what a great title for a book, by the way. Anyway, your column very cleverly pivoted off of uh, America's demographics, Neil, and you went into China. So let's talk about that today. Let's talk about what China is facing in terms of its growth, Neil, in terms of what it means as a world power. John, what it pretends for China and its economic engine. HR, the geopolitical concerns. Can China do guns and butter at the same time? So, Neil, you have the floor. Well, let me begin in, in Aspen. Uh, it's a little bit hard to be doomy and gloomy in Aspen in the summer. It's a sort of absurdly beautiful place. But I was surrounded by economists and the dismal science has its own distinct ambience. Uh, th there were some terrific papers at the Aspen Economic Strategy Group. Uh, Melissa Kearney had uh, one co-authored with uh, Phil Lev Levine on American population growth. And I learned a lot from it. Uh, our fertility rate has come way down. Uh, the population of the United States is growing at a much slower rate than we've been accustomed to historically. And legal immigration has basically seized up. So if one puts all the pieces together, uh, the picture for the United States is quite a disturbing one. And it has all kinds of fiscal consequences, which I know that John will want to, to talk about. So I was sitting there feeling a little bit despondent at the prospect of an aging America with one child per mom, when I asked myself the question, okay, but how does it look for China? And, and this set me off uh, in what turned out to be a rather interesting direction, because the United Nations population prospect has just been updated. And the updates are really fascinating because they've radically revised the outlook for China. China's demographics were supposed to be that the population would keep growing through this decade. But no, uh, it now seems like China's population is about to peak or has already peaked. And the really remarkable thing to me is that the medium projection, their kind of base case now, is that the population of China will fall by 46%, nearly half, between now and the end of the century. And that assumes that fertility recovers from its currently very low rate. The one-child policy hasn't been got rid of in practice. Chinese couples are basically having one child. If that doesn't change, then the population of China could decline by two thirds, by 65% between now and the end of the century. That is a very different picture from the one for the US, where in the base case, the population of the US goes up by 17%. In a, a case of higher fertility, it rises by 61%. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, the US and China are on very different demographic paths. The last point I'll make is that all the US has to do to win this if you want to think of it as winning, is resolve its immigration policy and get back to a significant, steady inflow uh, of legal immigrants. That's that's the key. And China can't do that, because if you ask people around the world, where would you like to emigrate to? Zero people say, we'd really like to move to the People's Republic of China. Nearly right. everybody would, would like to come to the United States. So that's the story I learned at Aspen. And I therefore was quite cheered up which I don't think was what the conference organizers necessarily expected to happen. John? Well, I'd, I'd like to cheer you up a little, Neil. So uh, except for that last bit on immigration, I disagree with just about everything you said. <laughs> and uh, um, the basic premise is demographics, is population a huge problem? First of all, let's remember 
demographic forecasts have been dramatic, especially 100 years out, have been dramatically wrong in the past and likely to be dramatically wrong again. Um, but is demography destiny? Uh, let's start with, remember, there's only so much space on the planet. <laughs> so sooner or later, we better get used to a, a level uh, population. And that's just, if that's the end of civilization, we're all in trouble, but I don't think it is. Uh, what matters uh, fundamentally to human welfare is GDP per capita, income per capita, productivity, uh, not the total number of people you have. There's not much connection between number of people and the wealth of each individual uh, person. There's a lot of small countries that are very happily and wealthy. Now, how do they do that? Well, their economies are integrated. Uh, they, they are parts of larger systems. Um, and in, in, in uh, you know, in the U.S. is... Uh, <laughs> The U.S. is actually quite underpopulated relative to China uh, at, at the moment. They have about the same land mass and three times the people. So number one, you know, what matters is, is smart people, uh, entrepreneurial people, people who work. Now, the U.S. has some uh, fiscal problems because we promise all sorts of things to our old folks. Uh, right. You got a problem there. A pay-as-you-go social security system, a we pay for the old folks medical Medicare system is, is not sustainable without population growth. Uh, this is not a civilization ending problem. Uh, we simply have made promises that we can't keep. <laughs> in fact, Social Security was invented in a time when people retired at 65 and died at 72. Well, people now die at 90. Uh, so this, this model of uh, 30 years of, of uh, leisure is, is not tenable. So yeah, they're, they're, you got you know, government finances have to adapt. Uh, and, but that's not uh, the end of the world to adapt government finances. If you have an economy with fast-growing productivity that's educating its few young people very well. Similarly, China, um, like I said, China has three times as many people per land as, as we do, so uh, they, they got room to go. China's uh, problem is not numbers of people. Uh, I just found out from uh, our friend Steve Kotkin um, uh, yesterday, a, a wonderful talk. China only graduates, 37% of people in China have a high school degree. <laughs> So what China needs is smart workers. China has China's a stuck in its middle income trap. Uh, what it needs is smart workers. Well, if, you know, you can get two thirds more people if you simply give them more education, which is a, a difficult challenge. Um, so, so the whole idea that just numbers of people, China, by the way, they're they're also stuck at a quarter a quarter of our GDP per capita. They're they're right now in the middle income trap. Can they grow? Well, let me just. Uh, isn't I, it true also though that isn't there a their youth unemployment rate pretty high among educated youth. I think it's in the twenty percent in the twenty percent uh, area. So twenty percent is twenty percent HR for all young uh, Chinese, okay. not just the educated. And this is an extremely uh, high rate. And 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 this before John goes any further with his uh, economics lecture is the key that it's not only that China's demographic trends are very. Uh, steeply downward, the working population is already shrinking. Uh, it, it's a population that is therefore pre-programmed to age faster than the US population to be catching up actually with Japan when it comes to aging. But this is happening at a time when the economic growth rate is coming down right. and very uh, sharply down into low single digits, I would guess, in the years ahead. Uh, and, and so not, not only is China in, in a middle income uh, trap, it's likely to stay there. Uh, and this, I think, is the really the really critical point. I, I mean, John, I, I'm I'm not about to argue that uh, demography or demographics is destiny. In fact, my piece begins by saying it's not. Just the opposite. Yes. Right? Uh, and population growth in the world is going to keep going. It's nearly all in Africa. Amazingly, something like ninety three percent of the projected population growth in the world to the end of the century will be in Africa. Now, the UN population prospects has been pretty accurate since it began, which is back in the early 90s, uh, just to be fair to the demographers there. This revision of the Chinese statistics is a huge deal because it's the most drastic revision I think they've ever done. And interestingly, the Chinese government now admits this, which previously it denied. So I think if you think about this, not just in terms of economics, but let's think about it in HR's terms, in terms of the strategic rivalry between the US right. and China, it's hard to think, it's hard to see this as, as good news from a Chinese perspective. They would have to achieve really quite remarkable productivity growth from here on to compensate for this aging and this decline in the in the size of the workforce. And I don't see that happening, certainly not in the data that I see. But HR, we should let you 
get more. No, I was, was going to ask you a question. So just for our viewers who are you know, maybe historians like me and don't have economics degrees like you guys or economic historians, growing out of the middle income trap, the way I understand it is you have to grow at a sufficient rate such that you can overcome your lack of competitiveness in the area of cheap labor, which is what China had is a very competitive uh, environment for, for cheap labor that attracted investment. Now, as income grows, the labor is becoming more expensive, but they're not becoming productive enough, nor are they generating enough domestic demand right, to, to, to grow out of that middle income trap. That's the way I understand it. And it looks like all the trends are down in terms of unemployment. But then I wonder if, if uh, Neil, if you and John would just comment as well on how the, the authoritarian mercantilist model you know, is is a lodestone around their necks. I mean, it, it seems to be to me that the party's doing everything the opposite of what it should do to grow out of the middle income track. It, it should it should encourage uh, more of a private sector entrepreneurial spirit while it's cracking down, you know, on the tech sector, on the education sector, on any sector that the party feels like it's losing control over. And then it's the zero COVID policies, these draconian policies. And of course, the demographic time bomb that we're describing is, again, related to the authoritarian model, right? The one-child policy and inhumane policy. And we haven't talked about this aspect of it either, right? right? Which is which has created a much higher percentage of males than females, which is another whole problem set they're dealing with. So, you know, I think I'm glad that you came out of Aspen optimistic, you know, because, because you know, I think we do, do need to be a little bit more optimistic on this show sometimes. But I do think, you know, when we look at China from afar, we think, oh, man, look, that centrally directed economy, they can just get stuff done. You know, they seem like they're right. so effective. But I really, I, and we, some people predicting this for years, I understand. But to me, the whole thing looks like it's, it's not going to work for them. I mean, I, I think their model looks very brittle to me. I'd love to hear what you guys think about it. About well, it. let me put this question to Neil. Neil, we keep hearing that the 21st century is the Chinese century. The 20th century is the American century. Now it's the Chinese century. We're one-fifth of the way into the 21st century. Does that narrative still hold up? No, it doesn't. I mean, 10-plus years ago, I wrote a book called Civilization, and I asked the question, is this where Western civilization steps aside and Eastern civilization uh, takes over. I think if you uh, look at the situation today, uh, it's far less convincing that we're heading for a Chinese or an Asian century uh, mm -hmm. than it seemed to me a decade ago. And I think HR is right as to what's gone wrong. Uh, the, the regime Xi Jinping established has reasserted uh, the primacy of the power of the Chinese Communist Party over the priority of of maximizing growth and hr has already given some great examples of of mm -hmm. how this has played out the, the the pressure on the tech sector the way zero COVID has been instrumentalized to impose uh the power of the party over society and so you look at the chinese economic model and you see all kinds of of problems which is i think why the growth rate is likely to be much lower in the next 10 years than in the past 10 and we haven't even got into real estate because Rather in the way that the Japanese economy in the 1980s fell victim to a great real estate bubble, which when it burst left the economy essentially flatlining, China's in a similar predicament. 29% of economic activity is real estate, and that means building tower blocks basically on, on land that has been acquired uh, at, uh, at, at rock bottom prices. If your population is forecast to halve, it's not quite clear why you would be building tower blocks. I mean, this is the, the equivalent of the old bridges to nowhere. It's tower blocks for nobody. Right. And as you look at China's financial situation, I'd be interested to hear John's thoughts on this. There is a real pile of trouble there. Debt, all kinds of uh, underperforming uh, loans, property developers, uh, on the edge of bankruptcy. And it's clear that the authorities are really pretty uneasy about the situation that they're in. I don't think they have a Japanese-style bust, but I certainly think that the, the burdens of debt that are accumulating are going to slow down China's growth at the same time as the demographic problems kick in. John? Oh, let me wrap up the first discussion and move on to real estate, because um, you guys did a great job. And, and thanks for trying to get me to be short for once in my life. <laughs> uh, but just uh, to restate the obvious, there's two concepts we've got to keep in mind, GDP per capita and total GDP of the country. Um, GDP per capita comes out of the productivity of your people uh, more than anything else. And China has, you can, and China started very poor. You can grow a lot and your, your GDP per capita grows until you hit the inefficiencies of your system. 
And you grow by catching up, by learning to do roughly, by having institutions that are a little closer to the US's. And uh, even though we're not perfect, the old Chinese ones are a lot worse. And then you hit the, the ceiling. And the ceiling is exactly where entrenched interests find future growth threatening. Uh, whether the entrenched interests are in, in some countries, the, you know, the powerful families, or in China, the entrenched interests are the Communist Party. And like you said, the tech sector was on its way to really being a world leader, not just a catch-upper. And they said, ah, 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 that threat that, that and so threatens our growth. So there's the classic thing is you start where you grow fast, and then you hit the ceiling. And the ceiling is where your inefficiencies don't let you grow anymore. And that seems to be where um, China is, is hitting. Now, HR may want to comment, income per capita is human welfare. Total GDP matters for how many aircraft carriers you can buy. <laughs> right. And there, uh, you know, small countries need alliances. You don't, just being small isn't necessarily bad. Uh, but the, uh, when it gets to military, it's the total amount that, that goes. So we'll, we'll get, I'm sure, to the economic underpinnings of the military. Now, the property thing is really interesting. Um, we have this big property bus, and I've been asking people, you know, wh why did they build so many apartments? Now, there's there's two things going on. One is um, China has China is a sort of an advanced country of 200 million, uh, married to a very poor country of 800 million, and those people need to move to cities. So, in fact, yeah, you know, the empty apartment blocks were always in the newspapers, and then you go back a couple of years later, and they're full because there's still this process of moving poor people from the countryside going on in China. But real estate was also, they have a very poor savings system. They don't have, they don't have much social security. Uh, they don't care about dependency ratio because in a communist dictatorship, your plan for old age is die in the streets. And they don't really care that much about it. Uh, but real estate, and, and you couldn't really save, uh, save well. So real estate was a way that uh, normal people could put money aside for retirement. Now that, that is a very dangerous a part of real estate, because as Neil points out, if you're buying apartments, speculating that you're going to sell them, you got to sell them to somebody. And if that's not going to be lots of people moving to the cities anymore, because you hit the uh, hit the growth, then then you hit the moment where they're useless. Uh, and so there's these wonderful videos now of China blowing up apartment blocks that that nobody needs anymore. Uh, and that's similar to Japan. That's also something that happens. There's a nice economic model of this. As you're growing fast, you're in the catch-up growth stage. Nobody really knows where that's going to stop. And then, and so things are priced in as if it's going to keep growing all the way up and catch up to the U.S. And then when we find out where it's going to stop, all of a sudden the growth options of investments disappear and you get a big uh, property collapse. So that does seem the whole real estate thing, the shady financing of the real estate thing, who owes who what that can't get paid, local governments that have made all their money by, by selling off land. Well, who's going to want that land anymore? Who's going to pay for those local governments anymore? Can China really bail everybody out in this real estate system? Imagine the social discord of, of, peop, of an entire generation whose retirement savings is in a apartments that aren't worth anymore. Uh, so that that it kind of boggles me. I wish I'm supposed to be the economist and explain all this to you. Uh, all I know is that there's something big there. The numbers are all, all fudged. Uh, it can't go on. Uh, will it result in, in a sovereign debt problem for China? Will, these prop, will the financial part of it burst out and cause problems uh, everywhere else? Uh, it, it, Big problem is all I got to say about that. HR, please. Well, you're alluding to the to actually the, the, a lot of this uh, rapid growth fixation on rapid growth from, from overall GDP was to to fuel the the buildup of the People's Liberation Army. I mean, the, the People's Liberation Army has increased forty four fold since right. the Taiwan Strait Crisis in, in ninety five ninety six. I think it was with the last one, and um and and so I, I think in their race, right, in their race to catch up and surpass us in, in military power, I think they they seem to have created additional frailties uh, in, in the economy. And and I'd like to understand that better from both of you. I mean, I, how much how much have in in their race to surpass us have they created you know, real real vulnerabilities? And then a related question is, isn't it time for us to stop underwriting our own demise? I mean, that's what I see when I see dumb money flows, index fund flows going into China. Uh, so you're taking pensioners money. Right. And 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 this money is actually uh, funding the development of next generation fighter aircraft and all sorts of weapon systems, because because a lot of that money goes into defense related Chinese companies, some of whom actually list on U.S. exchanges. And as we've already discussed, don't, don't meet the, the transparency and reporting requirements to begin with. So that money. Uh, as well as you know, targeted investments, venture capital firms, you know that have have you know, have invested in in companies like SenseTime, right? Artificial intelligence that China uses 
for military purposes and to conduct a genocidal campaign against the Uyghurs, you know? So it, what can we do financially uh, in this competition more? And, and is, you know, and how much it, it, are we propping up a system that is now revealing a lot of cracks and frailties in it? Well, let me take two, those two questions one by one, and then maybe John can weigh in. One, I mean, I spent a lot of time in China over the last uh, decade or so. I was a visiting professor at, uh, at Tsinghua, got to know people uh, in, the, in the government. And their goal, at least those that thought about the economic questions, was to try to grow the consumption part of the economy and make the economy less reliant on, on exports. Uh, and on fixed asset investment. Uh, Michael Pettis has been a, a longstanding critic of, of China's economic policy mix, arguing, I think rightly, that it involved actually suppressing the returns to labor uh, in, in ways that ultimately would be self-defeating. And I think much of his analysis being, is being borne out by recent events. They haven't succeeded in making this a consumption-led economy. It still relies for growth very heavily on the export channel. And when things go wrong, the playbook is always well, let's invest some more in infrastructure uh, and let's build some more coal-burning power stations. And, and this is where the model is fundamentally uh, broken, and it turns out to be really hard to repair. COVID, which it seemed as if the Chinese had got right in 2020, has now made the problem much worse because by pursuing a zero-COVID policy based on restrictions, because they don't have vaccines that work and they haven't vaccinated the people that really need them, they're actually depressing consumption even further. Uh, and I'm not sure how that gets fixed. Uh, in addition to which, people whose savings are under threat because they put the money into real estate are not likely to go spending. So I think part one of the answer to the question is that the economic model, which became very heavily reliant on exports and fixed asset investment, not on consumption, looks broken and maybe unfixable. The second question about investment in uh, our own demise, I suspect will answer itself in that, A, the returns to investing in China are going to suck. And there's nothing quite like uh, investments that suck to change the minds of American investors. And maybe trapped capital too, Neil, don't you think? The chances of that are pretty high. I mean, just losing it all. Right. Well, capital controls mean it's very hard to get your money out once you've yeah. put it in. Uh, and that's going to turn out to be a major problem. Uh, and at the same time, I think the process of decoupling is only going to accelerate the more conflict we have of the sort we've discussed in, in a previous episode over Taiwan and other strategic issues. So my sense is that, that if you kind of look ahead uh, five years, the, there's going to be a significant and sustained decline in, in US investment in China. I think, I think that's high, highly likely. I mean, just look at the currency, which has weakened quite significantly. Uh, this year relative uh, to the dollar. That that doesn't look good if you're a U.S. investor in, its, in itself. John? Yeah, I, I think um, China is increasingly cutting itself off from the world, joining up with those economic powerhouses, Russia and Iran. Hmm, that's great. <laughs> great set of trading partners right there. Uh, you know, this astounding wave of prosperity we have comes from globalization. And uh, it's been great for us. It's been great for China. And it's really going to hurt them. Their, their political cutting themselves off is going to hurt them a lot more uh, than, it, than it hurts us. I mean, in the end, it's all about productivity. And um, I mentioned exports. Um, China, export-led model, uh, don't worry so much about that. Because if you export a lot, what do you get? Well, we send them dollars, they send us stuff. <laughs> what are those dollars good for? At best, you can use it to buy American assets. Uh, you know, they can buy American companies. But guess what? Those American companies are located in America. So right. it's very hard to, to turn that into something worthwhile, especially if you're going into a, a strategic competition. So, you know, these are, I think, the big limits on Chinese growth. You know, back to the people. My complaint about the people stuff wasn't that it was zero. It's just that getting from 25% to 100% of US GDP or, or these kind of uh, limits on their, uh, on their economic uh, ability are, are more important than raw numbers of people. Um, uh, yeah, so China's in trouble. <laughs> 
And we all have to, you know, we can't get away from being global. Uh, this idea of reshoring everything, even the U.S., if you look at our, our supply chains for everything, it just inevitably comes around the world. Uh, you know, China's trying to do their own chips. Well, they don't have a chip lithography machine. <laughs> and uh, yeah, apparently there's only one in the whole world. Well, good, you know, good luck to anyone who tries to go it alone, including the U.S. And we shouldn't, I mean, let us at least agree we're not going to meet Chinese industrial policy with our own stupid industrial policy. The CHIPS Act, $250 billion down a rat hole of union-made chips, is exactly the wrong way to go to try to uh, solve this problem. Neil George Will, friend of Goodfellow's show, uh, has a rather interesting column in the Washington Post this week in which he asked a pretty provocative question, which is if China sees itself in long-term decline and assuming that China right now is the peak of its powers, does that speed up the clock on Taiwan, on an invasion of Taiwan? Does, does it feel an added sense of urgency because of its long-term conditions? Well, I think that's the right question that, that George Will is asking. And it's a point that I've made myself more than once. Uh, a, a regime like this, an authoritarian one-party state, which suddenly finds that the economic miracle it, it was presiding over has ended uh, and therefore can no longer rely on economic growth for its legitimacy, is highly likely, from a historian's vantage point, to become more aggressive in its foreign policy because it knows that it can count on a pretty strong nationalism uh, not only uh, from the masses, but from educated Chinese too. Right. And that's why the Taiwan situation is so dangerous, I think. Uh, we may underestimate just how much pressure Xi Jinping is under domestically, and therefore we may underestimate his readiness to take risk on the Taiwan question. My mm -hmm. sense when Nancy Pelosi did her visit, and she's uh, been succeeded by other congressional leaders in going to Taiwan, she was, in a sense, pouring some kerosene on, on that barbecue. When we don't have a particularly good strategy for defending Taiwan, if the Chinese do take the risky move. Now, uh, our colleague Michelle Ostlin just wrote a piece in the Financial Times observing that there's a real nuclear risk here that we shouldn't underestimate. HR uh, I'm sure would agree that there's been a big buildup in, in Chinese conventional and nuclear forces uh, in the last 20 years. So this is not the 1995-96 Taiwan Strait crisis that we could end up in. We could end up in something much more like the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, with two nuclear armed superpowers going to the brink over an island that happens to be very near to one of them. So I, I think this is a really serious concern. Mm -hmm. I was asked earlier by some visitors to Hoover what my recommendation would be. And my recommendation would be, let's not go down the Cuban Missile Crisis road of, of brinkmanship. Let's go straight to detente in this Cold War, rather than risk a confrontation that the Chinese may be much more ready to take on than we currently assume. Mm -hmm. Can I push you a little, uh, Neil? So is it really the decline that's the issue? I think of lots of authoritarian regimes who preside over economic decline without losing power. There's all of them, Cuba, Venezuela, North Korea. They don't seem to mind falling GDP at all. But there is, I think, Taiwan as an example. Uh, as long as Taiwan sits there, you can see that there is, a, as Hong Kong used to be, there is a society with Han Chinese who are culturally like us and speak our language, and yet they are free and much more prosperous than us. And that is what's really threatening to uh, an autocrat in China. That, I think, is what was threatening about Ukraine to Vladimir Putin. Here are people who, who look just like you, and, and um, you know many of them speak Russian, and yet they are turning to the West, and God forbid they turn to the West and become prosperous and, and, and undermine the legitimacy of our, our regime there. Isn't, isn't that more the, the motivation while, while agreeing with you on, on the dangers of where we go from here? And then I want to push you on detente and what that means. Well, I think that's certainly part of it. I mean, Taiwan has not gone in the direction that the CCP assumed back in the 1970s, yeah. where they essentially expected uh, reunification, as they call it, to happen quite naturally. If anything, the trends are entirely in the other direction, where the Ch Taiwanese population feels more Taiwanese, less connected to the mainland. And although they like the status quo, a significant proportion think of it as the status quo tending towards independence. So this is certainly a part of the concern uh, in Beijing. But I think it's a mistake to say, oh, there are lots of authoritarian regimes that have stagnated without right. uh, engaging in, uh, in international aggression, because I think you're confusing 
trivial countries with important countries, and Venezuela is a trivial country. Uh, China is one of the world's great empires. Russia, one of the world's great empires. And when authoritarian regimes in, in great powers get into trouble, I think HR uh, would be inclined to agree with me on this, they're quite likely to resort uh, to an aggressive foreign policy. If, if, if there is a pattern in the history of the last 150 years, that's part of it, in my view. And I, I don't think there would be such a risk if China could confidently look ahead and say, things are going our way, the trends are our friend, it will be an Asian century. The more they feel that their window of opportunity is closing because their economy is slowing, their population is shrinking, and the US has woken up to some of the threats that China poses, then I think the, the greater the likelihood that the Chinese leadership decides to take a risk. That kind of gamble has all kinds of precedents in history. Think of the Japanese gamble, which George Will mentions, uh, that led to Pearl Harbor. Think of the German gamble, uh, and it was a gamble in 1939 and in 1914. Great powers, when they're authoritarian regimes, are very, very different from tin pot dictatorships. Yeah, the, the, the Germans and Japanese both clearly felt um, this is our moment, and we're in a relatively losing position. We got to do it right now. But Pearl Harbor does, you know, as we talk about these war scenarios where the Chinese, uh, uh, you know, sink American carriers and blow up American bases. Boy, have they not read history? We may be the complacent, uh, talk a lot but never do anything country, but uh, blowing up an American military base would seem to me <laughs> to have yeah. a lesson about what the, the one thing that actually gets America going, doesn't it? Yeah, HR, let's get your thoughts on uh, George Will's theory, long-term Chinese decline equals added urgency to go after Taiwan. Yeah, Bill, I, I agree with them. I, I think that I think the Chinese Communist Party is driven mainly by fear, fear of losing its exclusive grip on power. And that's what in large measure also drives this, this narrative of national rejuvenation and restoring China to national greatness and the party trying to take credit for that and you know, sort of sort of skipping over. Uh, the the great leap forward and the cultural revolution and and blaming us you know in the West for all of their their problems. I think that that kind of jingoistic nationalism uh, that the party has been fostering for quite some time is going to intensify. It already is. We see it with wolfware diplomacy. We see it with the speech that Xi Jinping gave in the last year and a half about the Korean War, what they call the War of American Aggression, and uh, and and casting that war as a preemptive war in which Mao Zedong delivered one blow to prevent 100. And I believe this is how he's trying to frame Taiwan now. I think that the period of maximum danger may be, and I'd like to know what, what Neil and John think about this, maybe after the Taiwanese election in 2024, the party will probably try to subvert Taiwanese will, will try to achieve annexation by invitation it'll it'll fail in doing so and then i think it's very dangerous after 2024 and maybe even before 2026 in that window because after 2026 taiwan integrates a lot of new defensive capabilities and so does the japanese self-defense force for example so i i think that uh xi jinping has made pretty clear that he's preparing china for war for forcible annexation and what we're likely to see when that aggression begins is something that they rehearsed after Nancy Pelosi's visit, you know, a blockade of some kind and an effort at a coercive campaign before you would see an, 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 you know, a direct invasion of, of the island. I was just going to add to that. If the objective is to eliminate Taiwan as an as a attractive example, it doesn't matter if you destroy it in the process. Right. It may well happen. Uh, I want to go, but this, this all seems doom and gloomy, and, and it sounded like it, and, um, Neil had a way out. Uh, you know, uh, f fighting a war that we can't uh, really fight on the other side of the world uh, with nuclear weapons seems like an unpleasant way out. Neil, you mentioned detente. How, what does detente with China over Taiwan look like? Well, this is an unfashionable view, John, at a time of bipartisan hawkishness on China. Yeah, except uh, not, not for actually spending money on weapons or doing anything about it. We're, we're hawkishness right. in, in, in yelling about it. But please, or I'm sorry for interrupting me. Hawk it hawkish. Sounds like in, in sending congressional delegations yeah. to Taipei. Uh, but when you actually ask the question, would we want there to be a war over Taiwan? Only a crazy person would say yes, because as numerous experts have pointed out, such a war would be a very much larger affair than the war in Ukraine right now. A, the US would almost certainly be a combatant and not just supplying Taiwan, because Taiwan on its own 
couldn't possibly hold out for long, uh, and B, because it would almost certainly escalate uh, very quickly and potentially to the nuclear level, as, as Misha Oslin and Jim Stavridis and others have pointed out, to say nothing, John, of the economic consequences. Disaster. It would be an absolute meltdown uh, for world markets if this All, all Asian trade stops instantly. Right. Uh, I mean, they, they, a little bit of gas through the Nord Stream pipeline is nothing compared to what happens when there's even a blockade of Taiwan. Yes, exactly. so please. And no, and no microprocessors, you know, right. and, and then, right. you know, uh, you know, computers start costing, you know, $8,000 a piece. And, and you're looking at maybe even a depression, I think. If you think COVID caused supply chain problems, yeah, you would really be dealing with a complete breakdown in international trade and manufacturing. Uh, so we should really not want this to happen. And we shouldn't uh, be pursuing policies that raise the probability of such a war, particularly when we know that we don't have a great uh, war plan at this point. In fact, most of the war gaming that goes on goes on behind closed doors. But there was recently by one of the Washington think tanks, a public war game. And that made it clear just how incredibly costly such a war would be. And this brings me to detente. My argument for a while has been, look, uh, Dayton got a bad name back in the 1970s, but we shouldn't underestimate what was achieved in the 70s, if only to buy time for the United States to recover from the debacle of the Vietnam War. And I think if you look at what happened under Ronald Reagan, none of that would really have been possible in 1969 or 1970. It, it took a long time for the United States to be able to ramp up uh, the first Cold War and force the, the Soviet Union into an arms race that it couldn't possibly sustain. Those weren't options open to the United States at the beginning of the 1970s. So my argument for detente today would be, let's, let's play for some time here. Time is not on China's side, as we already have established. The demographic and debt dynamics are against them. We need about a decade, I think, to sort out the issues we've been talking about on this show for what feels like and must be two plus years. We have a lot of work to do uh, to rebuild the kind of domestic consensus that we seem to have lost, to reform immigration, to reform social security. We got a lot of work to do to sort America out. And I think the smart thing, rather than look for a showdown with China over Taiwan that would only bolster the regime in Beijing, is to say, you know what, we should, we should talk rather than engage in our current saber rattling. And there's a lot to talk about. Uh, you're a free trader, John. Let's talk about the tariffs. How much good are those tariffs really doing anybody? Zero. Well, hey, can I, can I, I've got to jump in here, Neil. Our I'm not done. Our, I'm not done. Neil's joining me now. <laughs> I mean, our saber rattling? Come on. I mean, look at what China's done. I mean, forced a COVID-19 on the world. Added insult to injury with, with Wolf Warrior Diplomacy. How about massive cyber attacks against all of our medical research facilities in the midst of a pandemic? How about economic coercion against Australia and Lithuania? How about bludgeoning Indian soldiers to death on the Himalayan frontier? How about and, weaponizing and HR, the South China HR, spreading Taiwan? could have I said mean, all the our, same our things. Sable rattling? I mean, One could have said all the same things about the Soviet Union in the late 1960s. The Soviets were <laughs> directly supporting the but North we, Vietnamese, we, we, as you very well know. But that isn't an argument for going all the way to our own version of the Cuban Missile Crisis, which I'm afraid is what we're engaged in doing well, over I, you time. Know, I, I think I think I think that quite the opposite. I think weakness is provocative. I think that's what we saw in Ukraine, and I think John's point about hey, you know, sending congressional delegations, yeah, great. But how about investing in real defense capabilities to restore deterrence by denial? Well, well we know? actually can't, can we? Because we can't even supply stingers and javelins to, to Taiwan on a large scale because we gave them all to Ukraine. Well, so, I, you I, know, I don't if know if you, you know, but I'm, I'm, an American, the production I'm, an American, the problem. I'm an American, not an American. Yeah, I think, but, I, think but, can, I think we can do it, Neil. I think we can. I think know, we decided but, to do it in, in a Reagan-esque way. In a if Reagan I could introduce way. some British realism into this discussion, uh, the U.S. defense budget is forecast to shrink as a share of GDP and to be overtaken by interest payments on the federal debt in 2027, that is five years from now. Mm -hmm. Any historian who really is worth his salt knows that great powers that are spending more on interest payments than on defense are probably not in a great position to go to war. I don't think the US is in a great position to engage in brinkmanship over Taiwan. It would, I think, be a dreadful mistake, actually, to find ourselves in such a showdown, because we might lose. 
for and you. that's the it's, thing that Americans don't like to think about. But Americans actually have a history of losing wars in Asia. I hate to remind you of this as an American, but you America couldn't win in Vietnam. You well, had you a draw hate... in Korea. <laughs> and do you really want to lose a war over Taiwan when you are clearly at risk of losing aircraft carrier groups to land-based Chinese missiles? Hey, listen, listen, it doesn't seem prudent to me, uh, if, No, no it, But does, does, uh, does supplication seem prudent? I don't think so. So how about but investing? Nobody's proposing supplication. And that is it is a great confusion to think that detente is appeasement, is supplication. This no, is I, no, I'm not saying that detente followed a very significant buildup in US defense capabilities and a restoration of, of deterrence, especially with conventional forces in Europe. And so these two things are not disconnected. I mean, it, it is not provocative to actually increase our defense capabilities. And the problem, as you know, in terms of in terms of the, the the federal budget, is with non-discretionary spending. That's what's squeezing out uh, the, the you know the the defense budget, which is minuscule compared to non-discretionary discretionary spending. And as you point out, we are at now at a post World War II historic low in percentage of GDP that's going to defense. So we do have headroom. To, to, I, be able to, to make some I want to proclaim both of you guys right. I, I love HR because you always see the world as it should be, not not as it is. <laughs> oh, come on, man. I've been dealing with realities my whole career, John. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> but I love your optimism and, and your strong sense of morality. Um, 2% of GDP. I mean, nobody who's fighting anywhere has any great power ever spent only 2% of GDP on weapons. So you're right. Uh, like the 1980s, this is the time to, our, our, our production, our weapons production lines are are, uh, are are very slow. We can't make Stinger missiles fast enough. Uh, like the 1980s, uh, HR is right. If we're going to be serious about this, we need to get the big stick going uh, again so that we can talk if we want to. But I like Neil's, what Neil's uh, detente looks like involves a lot of holding your nose. And what it involves, I think, is is making it clear to China how much they lose if we go through what HR has talked to. Here's where I think Neil's right. Uh, cutting China off, being in a strategic competition, our economy versus your economy, then they have much less to lose by invading Taiwan. Even though we, we disdain so many things that they are doing internally and externally, what detente means is selling grain to the Russians it, uh, in 1980. It, it means maintaining that economic connection, making it clear to them that their economy still depends on us, ties with us in Europe, not ties with Russia and Iran and Venezuela, uh, and that they have a lot to lose still by invading Taiwan when they have nothing to lose economically and they get us in our moment of still weakness. I, I think that's the danger. So I'm glad Neil points us finally to a way out, but, along with HR yeah, points us to a it, way out, which is rebuild the defense. We've done this before, right? The Obama strategy was a, a, engagement with China. Engage, bind, and offset. Engage them, right? In all these dialogues, which went nowhere. Bind them economically Taiwan. so they recognize that it's in their interest not to be aggressive and then offset with some really nifty defense capabilities that had not been developed yet. That was like yeah, a pipe, but, that was a that was a pipe dream. It was a pipe dream. But so, HR, I'm not recommending a return to the Obama administration's right. foreign policy, and you will never hear me do that. <laughs> Analogy with detente takes us back to 1969 to the early 1970s. When the United States, rather as is true today, was deeply divided, had lost a war because we lost the war in Afghanistan. That was a year well, ago. We, 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 we walked away from Afghanistan a year ago. And we're currently, just a reminder, devoting a really large proportion of our resources, uh, our military resources, to a war, a proxy war, in effect, in Ukraine. It's not a great time for us to go head to head with Xi Jinping over Taiwan. Detente is not the Obama strategy. Detente was a cynical strategy. You think Richard Nixon had anything in common with Barack Obama? Nixon was a cynic. He knew that the Soviets would cheat. He knew that they were insincere, but he also knew that the United States needed time to extricate itself from the horrendous mess it had got into in the 1960s in Vietnam. And that's the analogy that I think is appropriate. If you are right, and the United States is capable of fixing the non-discretionary parts of its expenditure, it's going to take years. The defense budget can't be doubled 
uh, or even increased by a few percentage points this year or next year. It might be possible in 2025 if you get a Republican administration, but even then it will be politically very difficult because I don't suspect the next president, if it is a Republican, will have big majorities in Congress. So we have to be realistic, HR. American has to be a practical, pragmatic approach. And I don't think it's realistic at the moment to talk about increases in the defense budget. That is not in the real political I think it's realistic to talk about 4% of GDP invested in defense. I mean, not happening. It's not happening politically, HR. Do you know what they just announced? They're giving money away to people with student debts. That's the priority of the Biden administration not arming to defend Taiwan. Well, it's this, this goes to George Marshall's, George Marshall's observation that when you have the time, you don't have the money. And when you have the money, you've run out of time. And so it, it's, it's, really, it's really important to make these investments now. That's why we have this Goodfellas show so we could talk about it. So maybe our listeners can help maybe uh, beat the drums about the importance of, of doing this. But I, I, I do think, Neil, that we are we are making it, it sound too defeatist about the PLA's capabilities, People's Liberation Army's capabilities. We're talking about aircraft carriers and missiles. Okay, that's one thing. We have tremendous subsurface capabilities. We have tremendous long-range strike capabilities with our Air Force. We have tremendous space capabilities and and cyber capabilities. And you know, so I would just say that it, China would take the wrong lesson from this conversation if they think it would be easy to do a cross-strait invasion across 150 miles in stormy seas, land in the mudflats in Taiwan and in the dense urban areas, and try to and try to subjugate an island the size of Maryland, and then sustain that logistically across that strait. I mean, I'm telling you, not it's not easy. But you know, and, and I think it's a lot further for us than it is for them, HR. Yeah, yeah just but a little. We're, we're pretty. We are still pretty darn good. You know, at at at, uh, at projecting power across those distances. But HR, what, so, Maybe so not at the scale it. we need to at this point. But what, what do we do if they if they say, "Oh, there's a hanging chat election going on that we don't like going on in Taiwan"? Yeah, we're going to save the Taiwanese people, and they blockade it. They leave the blockade in place. No, I mean, what I, do I we do about? We're going to start a shooting war over that. That that's well, clearly I, I, the, the I likely. Think we, I think we would respond. They're in a multinational format to forcibly. Uh, keep open Taiwanese ports. I, I do, you know, and and I think, I, and I think if you look at the ports in the west and the south, uh, we 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 could, you know, we could do that. And you also you have, you know, the the second kind of border with uh, with Japan's southernmost islands in the north, and and the Japanese SDF is developing some pretty significant capabilities. It would not be easy for them to do this. I'm telling you guys. I mean, it, you know, we 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 talk as if. As the, the PLA, you know, could could just impose its will easily on Taiwan, it would be an extremely difficult operation. And and but I think John, you're right. I mean, what's more likely is to try to accomplish objectives through coercion below the threshold that might elicit a concerted response yes. from the United States and others. And mm-hmm. that's what we have to prepare for as well. Can I just break a lance for one of my other institutions, the Harvard Belfer Center? So my old friend Graham Allison and, and Jonah Glick Unterman published a, a summation of the military balance uh, just the other day. Let me quote from it. Uh, it's called The Great Military Rivalry, China v. the U.S. If in the near future there is a limited war over Taiwan or along China's periphery, the U.S. would likely lose or have to choose between losing and stepping up the escalation ladder to a wider war. HR, have has there been a war game at any point in the last two years where the U.S. has won such a conflict? No, I'm not aware are, of and we, ought to, and we ought to be heartened by that, right? Because what you want to do is stretch the limits of your capabilities in these war games to, to demonstrate the capability gaps that you have to fill. But if you take a look at, at China's vulnerabilities, right? Do you remember the Japanese centripetal offensive in 1941 into 1942? Essentially, that was a land campaign to take control of the inner island chain and then just make it too damn costly for the United States to penetrate that defense and to threaten Japan directly. And they thought we didn't have the will to do it. Well, they calculated wrong. Now think of that inner island chain in the opposite direction. What if that were to be turned inward on the on the Eurasian landmass? China doesn't have any good options, you guys. I'm telling you. I mean, I, I, they don't have any good options. So I, I just think that 
you know, I think that we have to be, uh, we have to understand that, that we have ways of responding that are not directly symmetrical. We do not necessarily have to impale ourselves uh, onto a, a, a Chinese flotilla that is blockading the, the, the Taiwan. There are other ways to impose unacceptable costs uh, on, on the, on the uh, Chinese Communist Party and, and the People's Republic of China. Graham Allison clearly didn't impress you, but how about Elbridge Colby? Oh, uh, China has the will, the way, and increasingly a sense of urgency to take us on over stakes that are genuinely decisive for us. Let's not run the experiment. Nobody could uh, could say that Bridge Colby is a wimp on Taiwan, but he's worried. And I share his concern, don't you? Yeah, we, sh- we should be concerned. But that doesn't mean we should just, you know, wring our hands and, you know, and, and say, well, you know, Ch- China's, you know, uh, the People's Liberation Army is 10 feet tall. I mean, I... Hey, they haven't been in a scrap lately. I don't. I don't think Neil. You know, and and I think that there are you know some real difficulties associated with a, a military with a culture that is deferential and hierarchical, and and where leadership is is evaluated mm-hmm. based mainly on on the fealty to the party rather than a meritocracy. Uh, it is not a culture that encourages initiative and risk taking, uh, and and war is inherently uncertain and requires. Uh, junior uh, junior commanders to take initiative uh, under uncertain conditions. I mean, there are all sorts of, I, I think if you look at the qualitative aspects, you don't want to be complacent at all. I'm glad. I'm glad that we have all these problems in our war games because that, that's what helps make us better. But think about Russia's calculation, you know, in, in Ukraine, both the Russian army and the Chinese army look really good on parade. You know, I mean, they look really good on parade. How well did the Russian army, how good did the Russian army look in the invasion on February 24th? Not that good. So I don't know what lessons China is is learning from Ukraine, but hopefully one of the lessons we're learning is, hey, this stuff isn't that easy. You know, maybe we're not as good as we look on parade, you know, on the 75th anniversary of the of the party. Okay, let's cut it off there and we'll revisit, I'm sure, very soon. We have about five minutes left in the show. Gents, I'd like to ask you each a question. This is the last episode we're doing in the summer. The next time we'll get together, the calendar will flip to the fall. Question for the three of you. You all are family men. You all are academics. You all are writing on books soon to come out. You all are outdoorsmen enjoying the summer months. I'd like to know from each one of you one important thing you learned this summer. HR, why don't you start? (laughs) <laughs> well, I learned that the Phillies could make a hell of a comeback and hopefully they can sustain it. Uh, but, but, uh, you know, I, I also, you know, I also, um, you know, learned that, uh, you know, that, that paddle boarding is really my avocation. I do, I do like it. I do like it and uh, enjoyed quite a bit of it this summer. Okay. John Cochran, what did you learn this summer? Well, I, I like uh, HR. I've, I've been trying to paddleboard too. It's a lot of fun. Uh, the summer reminds us of, of how restoring it is to be out in nature for a little while. Okay. Neil, I'll give you the last word. Uh, Thomas Hardy was one of the greatest novelists of all time, and I've been rediscovering his writing. I read for the first time The Return of the Native, uh, and then uh, I've just been, uh, I've just been imb- imb- imbibing Hardy, whose ability to capture the natural world uh, is is unrivaled, uh, and and one of the highlights of my summer was reading Hardy on on board on board a sailboat not too far from his his beloved Wessex. Well put. Well, gentlemen, that's a wrap for this episode. Thank you, uh, as for always, a very spirited conversation. We'll be back soon with a new episode of Goodfellows. If you're wondering when, very easy way to find out. Subscribe to our show and you'll get the alert when we're coming up. You can also go to Hoover's website, hoover.org, and sign up for our daily report. Anytime Neil, HR, and John write or in the news, you will find out. So on behalf of the Goodfellows, Neil Ferguson, HR McMaster, John Cochran, obviously here at the Hoover Institution. Thanks for watching. Hope you enjoyed the show and we will see you soon. Take care. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in listening to more content featuring HR McMaster, subscribe to Battleground, also available at hoover.org.